Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Poland becomes the first NATO country to send Ukraine fighter planes. We have a jam-packed show today. Congressman Richie Torres stops by to talk bank regulation and how the U.S. handles China. Then we'll talk to Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold about the constant threats to democracy she's seeing in the state of Colorado. First, we have the host of The Time of Monsters, the nation's G-tier. Welcome, G-tier, frequent flyer with Fast Politics. So happy to have you back. Always good to be here. I am just delighted to have you back. You are one of my people. I want to talk to you about where we are (laughs) as a country. Republicans have started their GOP primary race, presidential primary. I think we can all agree that the next GOP candidate will be Nikki Haley. Yes, it's already (laughs) over. I I think Trump and DeSantis should just give up because that's obviously what Republican primary voters want. Right, exactly. Uh, Woman of South Asian descent who's totally tied to the GOP establishment. But actually, I think the fun news, I don't know if you saw it this morning, but there was some reporting about what I think will be the subject of Trump's next speech, which is Ron DeSantis's eating habits. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I'm not Emily Post myself, okay? So I'm not going to cast aspersions necessarily. But apparently this guy, he has uh, what his aides referred to as a problem with soft social skills. 
which is that he eats like a frigging animal and disgusts people, like, you know, even people, his supporters. And what the detail that got me was he's in a, a plane, which is like a close, confined space where you can't escape. And he was eating pudding with his hand. Uh, I'll say this about presidential <laughs> manners. Like, you know, Andrew Jackson famously had very poor table manners, but he's a populist. I don't know if an establishment Republican uh, like DeSantis, who's uh, supposed to be, uh, you know, Trump without the bad uh, aspects can uh, succeed with all these stories about his table manners. And I just, I'm looking forward to what Trump will do with it. You know, like I call him hungry Ron, folks. There's something going on. You know, he eats pudding with his hands. We got to find out what's going on here. I'm not saying anything. (laughs) I want to talk to you about this because I do think actually I am of the belief that Donald Trump says tiny D. Here's tiny D with his high heels cowboy boots and it's over. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's so much for it's like Donald Trump has been gifted with the most vulnerable Republican candidate ever. And that's the thing I don't understand is like you put Jeb up against DeSantis, Jeb would win. Yeah, no, it's really something. I mean, I guess they were um, out of alternatives. I mean, the thing to remember is 2016, they put all their top guys, you know, like, you know, Marco Rubio was once thought of as someone who could be president. Ted Cruz, they had like a lot of candidates out there. Chris Christie, you know, they had the whole array and he decimated them. And so, you know, the last man standing was this, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis. Tiny D. Tiny D. And he's not gonna run the sanctimonious here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, they, they really are putting all their eggs in one basket. And one of the interesting things is if you look at actually the polling already like DeSantis is slipping and it's just a little bit of like pricking on the part of Trump. Yeah, I mean, during this donor retreat in Palm Beach, this is a piece from the Daily Beast I'm reading, uh, an attendee stood up and called him to Satan. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I just think, you know, it's not going to take much. And I, people forget Trump really went after like his uh, rivals in a very vicious way that yeah. they could not respond to because they're normal human beings on some level. <laughs> and, you know, the stuff that he say, like, you know, like say that Ted Cruz's dad was involved with killing Kennedy. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, right? But uh, Ben Carson, there was like he's the only Republican who was like ever briefly ahead of Trump in the polling, and then Trump in 2016, and then Trump just let loose with this like taking stories from Ben Carson's autobiography, which were about his you know very hard background. Genuinely true that he you know came from. Uh, real poverty, but like, yeah, just saying, like, oh, this guy pulled a knife once, uh, you know, like, I don't know about him. Just like immediately, <laughs> Ben Carson deflated like a, you know, like a giant Macy balloon that pricked. I want to ask you about this more because I think what's happening here is a kind of conservative elite wish casting of which we have not seen since 2015, which is this idea that somehow the elite can control the base despite the fact that they have continually given in to every whim of the base. That's exactly right. There's two aspects to this, one of which is that all these candidates, they always have this sort of crew of hanger-ons who, like, you know, like, are really invested in them. That includes not just the staff, but the sort of media folks in the Republican media. And so if people, I want listeners to remember back to, you know, those amazing days of 2015 and 2016, where like, you know, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz had a lot of media followers who would put the best possible spin on things and who are like, you know, full of confidence that their guys had like everything going for them. And that's what we're seeing now with Ron DeSantis. As far as I can tell, his base is 
within the sort of conservative incorporated. And that's, you know, a fair number of people. There's a, a vast welfare state for like, you know, people on the right financed by various uh, billionaires. But these guys are very invested in DeSantis. And the thing is that he has very little popular appeal outside of that. Whereas Trump, okay, first of all, he already had won the primary in 2016. He had been president. He's a very popular president with Republicans, like right, like the people right. who are Republican voters. They thought like this guy did everything good, and and he was robbed. It just like blows my mind that they think. And also, Trump is willing to attack DeSantis, and DeSantis is not willing to answer back. And DeSantis's whole idea is, I'm going to be Trump, but boring. I will be Trump without the charm. Without the charm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be uh, exactly w- 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 without like saying funny things, without like you know funny tweets that uh, you can't get out of your mind, and without uh, and I will carry through the policies that we want. And the thing is, on some level, like I don't think like you know Republican voters, especially the sort of non-college whites that Trump really bought on board. I don't think they're that interested in policy. Like these are not people that like, you know, are reading the congressional record to see like, you know, what laws get passed. They're kind of here to be entertained, right? Like this is a kind of, you know, late Roman Empire decadence where, you know, like we want the <laughs> right, exactly who can do the, the funniest things, you know? I think that this is a really good point. I want to just like go into this for a minute, which is the Republican intellectuals, and again, at the danger of committing an oxymoron here, I want to say the people who were the brain trust of the Republican Party, which you and I can both agree were not brain worthy nor trustworthy, that crew made a deal with the devil in 2015. They decided that they were going to go with the guy they knew would win, mm-hmm. which was Trump, right? Or they maybe they didn't think he would win, but they decided they would go along with the base. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, look, the Republicans have had a real trouble really going back to the 1990s. They've only won the popular vote once in all the presidential elections since 1992. And Trump really offered them a way out that he could bring in new voters. Now, it's also true he alienated a lot of other voters, but the the actual bargain that he offered that he could bring in these non-college whites. People who never voted and never would. People who never voted, who were like alienated from the political system, bring them into the Republican fold, and that there were enough of these in the sort of like Midwestern states that you could, you know, have an electoral college uh, majority. And that was uh, the true part of his thing. There's actually a very smart Republican operative, Sean Shrende, who uh, did an article uh, about uh, 10 or 15 years old called The Missing White Voters. That is exactly about these white voters that were alienated, that needed like some figure like Trump that could bring them on board. And so, so, so to that extent, that worked. The problem is that what these voters want is not what the Republican elite want. And to some degree, like actually some of these voters are, I mean, people, you know, especially Democrats, there's like, well, they're deplorables. And it's true, like they have a lot of really bad attitudes, especially on race and gender. But it's also the case that like, you know, they don't want Medicare cut. They don't want Social Security cut. So the Republican economic policies, to the extent that they're not popular, not popular at all, you know, except like maybe like tax cuts, because you can kind of like say, well, they create jobs or whatever. But even then, I mean, like Trump's most unpopular moment as president was when he tried to get rid of uh, Obamacare. That's when he pulled the uh, lowest. That's when he's like really trying to carry out a Republican wish list. And I think it's the case that one of the problems with Ron DeSantis is he's trying to be like mini me of Trump. I'm Trump, but boring. You know, that's obviously a problem, but also that he's still tied enough to these economic policies. And so, you know, like Trump can't actually find genuine evidence 
that this guy wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare. And I have to tell you, there's like enough of these Republican voters who are like, you know, that Trump brought on board, who are like these senior citizens who are going to like, you know, not be very thrilled by this. I mean, already like this is, you know, like Democrats win among, you know, people who are like 45 and younger, Republicans win among 65 and over. And so like, if you're if you're that party, like, why the hell would you be talking about Social Security and Medicare cuts? Nikki Haley doing that too, you know, like we need to raise the retirement age, like good luck ever getting elected on that. You know, Macron is trying to do that in France. They're going to have another revolution. <laughs> right, like, and they're trying to raise it to what, 67? I mean, I don't even think. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, anyways, anyways, yeah, no, I so so I mean I think you know like anything could happen and maybe this DeSantis thing is you know hungry Ron is uh, a little bit more <laughs> talented than I suspect but right right now Trump has a lot of cards on his side one of which is his popularity among Republican voters his fame his name recognition but also the fact that all he has to do is bring up the fact that DeSantis you know like wants Social Security and Medicare cuts and uh, that's a, a, a big thing. And, you know, DeSantis tries to compete with him by copying Trump on everything. And the thing is, like, if you have the original, why would you go with a copycat? DeSantis is saying, well, you know, why should we be helping Ukraine? Like, well, if that's the policy you want, then you already have a guy who's going to do that for you. No, I agree. If if pro-Putin is your game, you got the guy, man. I mean, no, I think it's true. And I think we're seeing again, which is this is the sticky wicket that the Republican Party is stuck in. And by the way, I'm delighted because fuck them. But to be Trumpy enough to win a primary means you are completely unelectable in a general. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think that, well, except that, I think the gambit is the electoral college thing, which is if you can get enough. But I actually think that to, to actually win the kind of electoral college victory Trump did in 2016, you have to have you know enough real populist bona fides and also be able to reach those non-voters. And Trump could do that because you know he's on television for like 20 years, right? Right. right, <laughs> and right so it's true. TV is the most more popular than any politician in America. You know, more people watch TV. DeSantis doesn't have that. Like he those voters will not know who he is or care about him. Unfortunately, you know, like it's a two-party system. So like there's a few things that could go wrong, either in terms of Joe Biden's health or in terms of, you know, um, the, the economy. And we haven't even talked about what's happening with the banking system. Unfortunately, like, I'm not so sanguine that, I mean, I think DeSantis is going to have a hard time getting the primary, uh, the Republican nomination. But I do think, like, you know, any Republican has a decent shot, unfortunately. Right, because of the elements that we can't even predict. That said, I actually think, and this is the one thing that makes me a little bit sanguine, it's going to make everyone else upset. I actually think that DeSantis is much more dangerous than Trump because people know Trump is really dangerous. Like, I mean, he may still win, but there is a knowledge that he is a dangerous autocrat, whereas there are people on this planet who still think DeSantis is not, and they're wrong. Well, exactly. But I want to actually narrow that down to exactly what the danger is, which is that because Trump was coming from this reality show world, the, the you know, like the centrist establishment never trusted him. Whereas DeSantis, you can kind of see that there are people, especially like, you know, the New York Times has done like, I don't know, a hundred different articles, like <laughs> why would Ron, uh, DeSantis should be given some credit? I'm a liberal, but, you know, I kind of think <laughs> right. he's cute. And what, what, we saw this with this Axio business, which is that, you know, like, 
this reporter for Axio got a press release from DeSantis and he just emailed back to them like, you know, this isn't a press release, it's propaganda. You know, snarky comment, but right. well with a bounce. And, Axial fired and also him. true. Yeah, yeah and true. Yeah. And Axial fired the reporter. And I think that's what's going to happen if there is a DeSantis presidency. Because he's not Trump, even though he has terrible table manners, they'll cover that up. They'll hire a CIA duplicate that will like go to dinner parties and yeah you know use table manners uh, uh has read emily post but i think that the centrist media the times the washington post cnn axial political they're all going to be like this is what they want you know like a republican that could carry out trump's policies but without being unsettling and scary the way the way trump is or just vulgar i mean for you and me like the scary thing about trump was he's an authoritarian right and you know he's a threat to american democracy as as of january 6 for a lot of these centrists the scary thing about Trump was he had bad manners and he tweeted, you know, and, and, which was actually the best thing about Trump. I mean, the, his vulgarity was... Right, right. No, no, I agree. His vulgarity was his best quality. Yeah. But anyway, but they're going to buy into it. You can already see calling it now. Like, you know, like if, if it's President DeSantis, he's going to get much more favorable coverage, like in all the media. Well, the National Review crew, I mean, I wrote a piece about how DeSantis was more dangerous than Trump because he's much more effective and much smarter than Trump. I mean, one of the good things about Trump, at least for our case, was that when he tried to do something, he usually fucked it up. Whereas DeSantis has been incredibly successful as turning Florida into a mini autocracy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean that, that is why, the, you know, the, on the right, he's the American Orban. Like he can use the powers of the state to like, you know, try to create a, a one party state. And unfortunately, like, I got to say, there's some buy-in on that from some of the centrist media as well. And I think that's where that's really where the danger lies from, that it's going to be a little bit harder. I mean, on the positive side, I think that the push for more mobilization among liberals to actually like, you know, and maybe to break with the centrist media and try to create more alternative media sources. Because I think people are really going to see with DeSantis much more than Trump, the right sort of authoritarian Republican. There's a lot of people in the establishment that that's what they want. I mean, I I agree that the Republican Party is completely without hope and that they've embraced authoritarianism and that they continue to engage in it. I don't think DeSantis gets there. Like, I think Trump just takes him down with at the knees because everything we're seeing evidence wise points to the fact that he is a bad at retail politics. And like we are a country where our politicians need to go on television and be charming. And I just, you know, no evidence supports the idea that he could even do that for a minute. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Right now, the, the signs are very bad. And and where success is, is in terms of like sort of fundraising with the uh, donor base. And I have to say, if that's what is your success as a politician, then, you know, that's why we had President Jeb Bush. That's why we had President Ted Cruz. Right. That's why we had President <laughs> right. Phil Graham. I don't right. know if you remember Phil Graham, but, right. you know, like, uh, because that guy, they could, like, open up a bank account and suddenly there'd be, like, $150 million. <laughs> I would say one other thing about this, which is that, you know, I was talking to someone who's a staffer and that person was saying that actually they're seeing some GOP donors who do not like him because he can't schmooze. And like, you know, Trump, I mean, again, and I am no fan. This is no one is defending Trump. No one is liking him. No one is even saying anything nice about him. But Trump could schmooze. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we kind of underrate that aspect. But I mean, the thing is, if Trump was an ideal GOP candidate, 
in this era where they're kind of a shrinking party because he could both, you know, he's from enough money and he has Mar-a-Lago and he knows how to talk to, you know, the real estate guys and the car dealers to give them to pony up some money. But he's also, you know, was on TV. So like the non-college whites can really relate to him. So yeah, I, I just think, yeah, DeSantis, it sounds like from what you're saying, he's weak on both sides, which is like a really amazing thing. We'll see how, I don't want to get too much into prediction game, but I think these are real vulnerabilities in DeSantis. And right now, the people that love him most are these guys who, at National Review and elsewhere, who I got to tell you, like, they get paid six-figure salaries for like a minuscule readership. I don't know if you saw this thing with Rod Dreher. <laughs> Yes, that was a Vanity Fair story. Yeah, yeah Vanity Fair story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so this guy been writing for like a long time, blogging on American conservative. It turns out that his entire support was one rich guy in California, a real estate fail son who had a lot of money, like Rod's writing, and was paying for his whole salary, which is six figure, for writing this gibberish. And, and then Andrea, like, unfortunately, like went too far with describing an uncircumcised penis that he saw when he was a child as like this kind of root wiener or something like this. And, and then the donor said, oh, that's a little too weird. That's it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, Roger, a good point. Completely, completely insane. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a delight. Always good to be on the show. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Congressman Richie Torres represents New York's 15th congressional district. Welcome to Fast Politics, Congressman Richie Torres. Always a pleasure to be here. Delighted to have you. First, I want to talk to you about what you just said to me before we were recording, um, which was that what you were told was that being in the minority would be more laid back and it has not been that case. Can you explain? Yeah, I, I was told that, you know, since I'm in the minority, I will have more free time in my hands. And in fact, quite the opposite. It's been much more demanding partly because of the committees on which I sit. I mean, financial services is demanding, but I was appointed to the new select committee on strategic competition between the United States and the CCP. And the combination of those two committees has been quite consuming. You know, on Sunday, it happened to be my birthday. I I just turned 35. Stop bragging. I've been an elected official for 10 years. Shut up. And and I, and I, I could not even... I could not even celebrate my birthday because I was bombarded with phone calls about the banking crisis. See, I only emailed you. So there we go. Well, I, I do not consider an email from you work. For what it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. So talk to me about what happened with you guys and Silicon Valley Bank this weekend. As you know, unlike in 2008, when the banks invested in distressed assets, right, like you know, junk like subprime mortgages. Silicon Valley Bank heavily invested in long-term assets, long-term treasuries and prime mortgage-backed securities, which are normally safe assets. Yes. Those normally safe assets became unsafe for a bank in a high interest rate environment. And so when the Fed began raising interest rates, it had two effects. First, it drove down the value of those long-term bonds because investors could get short-term bonds with the same or better yield. And second, it drove down the amount of startup funding, which led startups to withdraw their deposits from Silicon Valley Bank, which was the go-to lender for the startup industry. And in order to honor those redemption requests, Silicon Valley Bank had no choice but to sell their long-term assets, their valuable assets in the short term, which meant selling them at a loss. People should keep in mind that banking is as much about psychology as it is about finance. Yes. It's a confidence game. And when 
Silicon Valley Bank announced that it had sold more than $20 billion in securities at a loss of $1.8 billion. That announcement, which was poorly timed against the backdrop of the Silvergate collapse, <laughs> panicked yes. customers into withdrawing their deposits. And in a world of social media, financial panic can spread more rapidly and more widely than ever before. And keep in mind that the customer base of Silicon Valley Bank were not retail customers. These were VC firm startups that are hyper-engaged online, that have more social media savvy than the average person. So this is the first bank run in American history that was driven by social media. And I want to provide a contrast that illustrates the speed. So in, in, in 2008, Washington Mutual, which was the largest bank failure, saw a loss of $16.7 billion over the course of 10 days. That was the largest bank failure. Silicon Valley Bank saw the loss of $42 billion in the span of a single day. So the sheer speed of the bank, of the bank run is unprecedented in American history. And much of that is social media at work. A lot of Ayn Rand types, venture capitalists, people who sue for being mentioned on a podcast, so their names will not be used, but you know who I'm talking about, Peter Thiel. There was a lot of involvement from that crew in ginning up this panic. The VC community <laughs> arguably planted the seeds of its own decline. Like the VC community made a decision, which is baffling beyond belief, right. to sabotage their leading lender. Like without Silicon Valley Bank, the tech startup industry is going to have far less access to capital. Yeah. It's, it's a dramatic disruption of their status quo. So this was a case study in self-sabotage. Yeah, that was my thinking, too, when I started to get calls on Saturday from freaked out VCs. I mean, I just want to, like, talk through this for two more seconds because I know I want to talk to you about China after this. But the bank needed to recapitalize. The truth is, as much as losing money on mortgage back, it's not mortgage back securities. It was it wasn't about it was T-bills, right? Both treasuries and prime mortgage-backed securities. So safe. Right. So safe. Losing a billion dollars. I just want to like contextualize this. A billion dollars on T-bills and uh, and these securities is not necessarily like they could have come back from that. There was no reason why that number needed to destroy the bank. No. Look, the underlying finances of the bank were sound. Right. But keep in mind that what drives bank runs is not economics or finance, it's psychology. It's it's the irrationality of financial panic. And there's no bank in America. I mean, the, the honest truth is there's no bank in America. Right. They can withstand that. That has enough on hand to cover all your deposits. That's the nature of fractionally reserved banking. I want to go deeper on this because now that this news cycle is sort of now that we're a couple of days into this cycle, the Republican narrative is this was woke banking. OK, we know that's <laughs> Bullshit, right? We saw the 24 white guys in the management, obviously. And and by the way, you know, whatever. It wasn't fucking woke banking. That's bullshit. But I want to go back for a minute and talk about when this bank run happened. These regional banks were not regulated the same way that the larger banks are. Can you talk about that? Yes. So the banking system was radically remade in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. We passed Dodd-Frank, which subjected the largest banks, the biggest banks, to the most rigorous forms of regulation, a stress test, much larger capital reserves. There's a concept known as enhanced prudential supervision and enhanced prudential standards, which is the highest form of regulation. And banks with assets 50 billion or more were subject to the highest regulation. In 2018, with lobbying from regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, 
President Trump signed into law a bill that would that raised the threshold for enhanced supervision from $50 billion to $250 billion. And at the end of 2022, Silicon Valley Bank had $209 billion in total assets, which was right below the threshold for enhanced supervision. And that's significant because without enhanced supervision, it radically reduces the amount of stress testing you're undergoing. It radically reduces the granularity and the frequency of the stress testing. Now, having said that, even if the law had never been changed, one cannot know for sure whether the crisis could have been prevented because right. there appears to have been an incestuous relationship between the Fed and Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank sat on the board of the Federal Reserve <laughs> of San Francisco, which is his regulator. Right. So th that to me is is suggestive of an incestuous relationship well, that, that undermines regulation. Why did that happen, by the way? I mean, how is that allowed to happen? I mean, one of the lessons learned is that we have to prohibit CEOs of sitting on the boards of their regulators. Like common sense dictates that that is a conflict of interest. Right. When we talked about this anxiety that a lot of these VCs were having, you said if this bank is able to get a guarantee, we need to regulate the, you know, out of them. So, yeah, I mean, I want to make that point because it's it's a trade off, right? If if we're expanding the realm of too big to fail right. to include regional banks, then that has to come with strings attached. That has to come with more rigorous regulation. You know, regulation is important not only on its own merits, but because regulation inspires confidence. Like we have confidence in the biggest banks like JP Morgan because those are the banks that are subject to the most regulation. Right. And I think that, you know, it's funny because it's like we had the last couple of months, we've seen both regulatory failures in the trains and we've seen regulatory failures in the banks. And remember, we had this president for four years who was like, every day I take away a regulation, you know, for every one regulation, I take away 55. I mean, that and and like, you know, when you say stuff like that, people don't understand it until they're, you know, trying to get to the get money out of the bank. Look, for me, our highest priority has to be to protect the safety and soundness of our banking system, which is the beating heart of our economy. Everything else is secondary. And, you know, one of my criticisms of the Fed is that it has a dual mandate, right? When setting interest rates, it considers employment and inflation. A case could be made that the Fed should expand its mandate to include financial stability. We have to consider the impact that interest rates have on the stability of the banking system, which is the beating heart of the economy. Yeah. So interesting. So talk to me about what's happening with this special committee you're on. Explain what it is and what it does for all of us who are not completely read in. So the House has set up a new committee on strategic competition between the United States and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, which is essentially the committee on everything. It will touch on the jurisdiction of every standing committee. We're going to tackle military, diplomatic, geopolitical, economic, technological issues. But our goal is to ensure that America remains competitive, that we remain the leader of the free world. Um, you know, I think we should be careful not to engage in bellicose rhetoric that will provoke even greater tensions between the United States and China. But we have to recognize that the Chinese Communist Party is a genuine challenge to the United States. Um, as you know, China, or the CCP rather, is, is committing genocide against Uyghur Muslims detaining more than a million Muslims in concentration camps in what it calls re-education centers. We know that the CCP is showing the same kind of aggression toward Taiwan that Russia had shown toward Ukraine in the lead up to the invasion. 
We know that the CCP has stolen $600 billion in intellectual property from the United States. We know that the CCP subjects its own people to a mass surveillance state, the likes of which not even George Orwell could have imagined. And we know that the use of China as a global factory has utterly decimated manufacturing in the United States. So those are challenges that are too glaring to ignore. And I think the mission of the committee is to create a comprehensive legislative agenda that touches on all those topics that will position the United States to be more productive at home and more competitive abroad. It's such a hard thing with China because they are like much of the world. I mean, and they're clear. One one fifth of the world. Right. So clearly (laughs) they're too big to war with. Right. Right. Like, I mean, speaking of too big to fail. I mean, how do you deal with a country that is I mean, if you think about like the war with Russia, whatever, the war, non-war with Russia that we've been fighting for the last year, like in the end, eventually Russia will just get bored with this. But I mean, or they'll or they will get exhausted and they'll run out of money. But I mean, you go to war war with China, that's the end of it for all of us. So, I mean, what, how do you tread with a country that won't necessarily negotiate? Well, the mission of the new committee should be to prevent war, not provoke it. Right. Because the worst case scenario is a World War III, a war between the United States and China, which would be a complete catastrophe for the globe. I mean, that could be the apocalypse. So our goal should be to prevent war. And the relationship with China has to be both cooperative and competitive. It has to be cooperative on global challenges like climate change, but it also has to be competitive. We have to ensure that the United States, that the democracies of the world maintain a competitive edge when it comes to critical technologies like semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. You want democratic countries to be the leaders in those fields. I want to ask you, here you are in this brave new Congress. I mean, like this new committee was started in a GOP Congress. So there are some not insane things coming out of this Congress, despite the fact that, you know, it's led by a guy who basically got his job because Tucker Carlson said he could have it. There's a tale of two Congresses. You know, the Republican Party has policymakers and performers. Right. If you sit on the Financial Services Committee under Patrick McHenry or the Select Committee on the CCP under Mike Gallagher, you know, I have differences of opinion with them. But but those are serious people and those are serious committees. And so I have a different experience of Congress. But if you are sitting on oversight or judiciary or the weaponization committee. (laughs) You think they're not doing serious stuff over a weaponization. You're in the realm of the absurd. I mean, it's just funny. It's like. I don't see how the weaponization committee could even hire staff. Like if if I were interviewing someone and someone said, oh, I was the staff director for the weaponization committee, like I would just laugh. It's like it's just the, the title is silly. Well, I think they must go to like Breitbart, you know, people in that crew. I steer clear of those committees because I would rather legislate than be subjected to the utter stupidity. Uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Barbara. I want to get into this for a second, this idea of the a tale of two Congresses. How do you have serious Republicans in Congress? How do they negotiate, you know, the Kevin McCarthy crew? Well, even though there are serious Republicans, make no mistake, the far right is in charge of the Republican Party. Like, like the, there's nothing serious or there's nothing responsible about playing a game of brinksmanship around the debt limit. So even though there are serious Republicans, make no mistake that Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party writ large is hostage 
to the far right, which is willing to breach the debt limit of the United States to score political points against Joe Biden. Right. And and that's so I, I want to be clear that we cannot overlook or whitewash the fanaticism of the far right, which is enabled by the cowardice of the center, which to the extent that it even exists in the Republican Party. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible, incredible stuff. What else are you seeing? You know, you're in Congress. I mean, is it all just this run up to the debt ceiling or is there other drama going on? Uh, although there's no shortage of drama. I mean, the, the you know, I never thought, look, in my first term, uh, on my third day, I lived through the insurrection. And then in my second term, I lived through the longest speaker vote in American history, or one of the longest speaker votes in American history, the longest speaker vote in, in 164 years. So there's just, an endless stream of drama in in Congress, and, and it's because of the Republicans. The Republicans create drama where where none is necessary. Obviously, the banking crisis is going to continue to weigh heavily on us, and we have to focus on it. We cannot take for granted that the crisis is behind us. Even though yesterday the markets had a good day, though today they're not. And again, the stock market is not the economy. I want to ask you one last question. You are from New York. Democrats got creamed and lost the House because of Jay Jacobs. I mean, there's a real opportunity there between Santos and all of these other Republicans in these swingy districts. Do you think that New York State can learn its lesson and get its shit together? I just turned 35 and my birthday wish is a Democratic majority in 2024 and Hakeem Jeffries as the next speaker. And the road to the Democratic majority runs through New York State. Am I confident that we're going to reform the Democratic Party in New York State now? But I am confident that we can win back those seats because in a presidential year, you're going to have dramatically higher Democratic turnout in what are essentially Democratic districts. These are Democratic-leaning districts. And, and so I'm cautiously optimistic, but we cannot take it for granted. And as you know, House Majority PAC is going to invest $45 million in six races in New York. So that's an astonishing investment. Uh, that's how serious we are about winning back the majority. And, and we see New York as, as the road to the majority. Richie Torres, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. Jenna Griswold is Colorado's Secretary of State. Welcome to Fast Politics, Secretary of State Griswold. So let's talk about what is happening in Secretary of State world in Colorado. Again, I want to preface this because we think of Colorado as a blue state because it has a blue governor. It has two blue senators now. But you're very much really on the front lines in a lot of ways. That's right. Colorado does have blue Democratic leadership right now. But with that said, I was the first Democrat to win Secretary of State in over 60 years when we won in 2018. I do think that Coloradans, unaffiliated Republicans and Democrats just do not like the extremism. So I, I think both are true. We've been at the front line on a lot of the attacks on democracy, which are ongoing but also have an, an electorate and a citizenry that just does not like the extremism. So talk to me about some of these ongoing attacks, because you are on the front lines of voting. And so you're seeing a lot of stuff that we may not be seeing yet. So tell us what you're seeing. Well, most recently, this past weekend, a prominent election denier won the race for chair of the Colorado Republican Party. 
And it's a latest example of how democracy remains under attack. Election deniers have been targeting state GOP chair positions and winning key races. So, so far, I believe this is the fourth state party to, to go to an election denier. Right. Michigan did recently, too, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The person who won was actually competing against Tina Peters, who was the woman who who breached her own security trying to prove the big lie, a local county clerk facing seven counts of felony indictment. And she actually endorsed Dave Williams, who ended up winning. Jesus. Tina Peters was an election denier who ended up facing real legal consequences. That's right. So it was the first insider threat incident in in the nation that we know of where my team discovered uh, the passwords to her county's election system posted online by the person who allegedly is the the leader of QAnon. So we ended up investigating. She uh, did compromise her her system. She's she's facing a criminal trial right now and then was just convicted last week or the week before on a, a separate trial. So is our was charged criminally. These small county clerk jobs are sort of unsexy, but they're real things and they have real consequences. They absolutely have real consequences. And to be very clear, the vast majority of county clerks, Republicans, Democrats, and affiliateds do a really good job. They are elected to uphold the right to vote, to actually administer the elections. And they do a fantastic job. Here in Colorado, I, I was just meeting with some of the clerks yesterday and mentioned that the, the clerk from Fremont County, who's a Republican, in my eyes, got the best compliment because the, the county Democratic Party told me how much faith they had in his leadership. And that's how these county clerks should work. The local county parties should have total faith in the county clerks. And the vast majority of them work around the clock. They are the unsung heroes of American democracy. But of course, we've seen a couple problematic ones pop up. I just want to go back to these state party chairs, because can you explain to us why that matters? So why electing an election denier for a GOP chair, what that what the sort of consequences of that are? Yeah, I think there's a couple consequences and it, it depends state to state. Um, first and foremost, they're they're the leader of the state Republican Party. And with the uh, election of Dave Williams here in Colorado, it's clear that the, the state Republican Party has embraced a election denialism. That should be worrisome in itself. Um, You know, in Michigan, Christina Caramo uh, won her election of the state Republican Party. She ran for secretary of state last cycle and has still refused to concede her failure. She believes, by the way, that like yoga is a a tie to Satan or something like that. It's it's really far out there. The first thing is just the bully pulpit uh, of leadership. But then we work, the secretaries of state work with the leadership of of both political parties on uh, election issues through the election cycle. Depending on the state, the county parties are are compiling a list of election judges and election watchers. Election deniers have also been elected to state party chair in Ohio and Kansas. So it just underlines that 
Although voters did their great service to democracy in the midterms, election denialism has not been defeated. Folks on the far right are doubling down. So we just have to continue to remain extremely vigilant and take action to protect democracy. It's so dispiriting that this continues on and that like the voters just have to keep rejecting this kind of crazy. It is. But I'll tell you, I am hopeful. In the the midterms, we had election deniers running for secretary of state, so the chief election officer, in every battleground state where we had a race. So we had election deniers run in Nevada, in Michigan, in Minnesota, in New Mexico, in Arizona. And why I'm so optimistic is that when uh, American voters know what's at stake, they are rejecting these extremist candidates and ensuring right. that they're electing folks who will be good stewards of, of uh, elections and ensuring that every eligible person, regardless of their political affiliation or the color of their skin, can have their voice heard. With that said, I do think we are not out of the woods, but I also think that we will beat this extremism. We're just not there yet. At the end of the day, this is about power. And if Americans continue to reject this, these extremist candidates, I do think this will fade out of mainstream political thought. Yeah. No, I mean, I think if they keep losing with it, eventually they'll decide that they have to run on something else. But yeah, it's incredible that they keep losing on it. You're seeing these state party chairs. You're seeing these uh, county clerks. What else are you seeing at the state level in Colorado? So across the nation, we are seeing the, the continual effort to strip Americans of the right to vote. If you remember the last couple of years, we saw an unprecedented passage of voter suppression laws. It is now harder for many Americans across the country to vote than before. And that trend continues. This year alone, in at least 32 states, over 150 voter suppression or election interference bills were pre-filed or introduced. And we are seeing uh, across the the nation extremist Republicans continuing to try to undermine elections and and pursuing a, a radical agenda. Our right to love who we love, marry who we love, provide kids with the best possible education, the the right for women and people to have control over our own bodies, it all starts at the ballot box. That's why protecting democracy is so important. Lots of work ahead, but I am confident we're going to get through this dark period of American history. In Colorado, what does your state house look like? Are there still a lot of you? You are the state that has Lauren Boebert, I'm sorry to tell you. So, I mean, there's a real right wing contingent there. Yeah. So the state house and state Senate are controlled by Democratic leadership. So there's majority Democrats. But with that said, I will tell you, if you could even believe it, my saddest day of being an elected official was actually January of this year. I was testifying uh, in the legislature and there were various legislators in, in the committee that I was testifying in who were straight election deniers. And seeing elected officials right in front of you spew out these conspiracies in a state like Colorado, it's sad. Not only because they're misleading uh, or trying to mislead their constituents and, and lying from a position of power, but words 
have power. And I know that's corny to say. No, but it's true. These lies, they've incited violence. It's the reason that there was a kidnapping attempt of the Michigan governor. It's the reason that Paul Pelosi was attacked. It's the reason in December that six elected officials' houses in New Mexico were shot up. So, you know, we have to maintain our path on on pushing back on the disinformation with truth, on refuting the lies. And and that work isn't over either. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. What about abortion access? I mean, I can't believe I have to have this conversation with you, but you're one of the few states in your area that is, I mean, there are a couple states in the West, but you are an abortion safe haven for people who need treatment. Yes. The the last time I I was on your podcast, I think was right after the Dobbs decision. So the the gutting of Roe and it was such a, a visceral shock, even though we, you know, many of us suspected that it was coming. But to have the Supreme Court literally decide that it would no longer protect the full citizenship of women in this country, but more than that, really dictate many women to death, it is so outrageously shocking that, that I'm with you. I can't even believe we have to have this conversation. But luckily, there are states like Colorado who are, are continuing to pr- protect women and provide services. Our state legislature did a fabulous job last year of, of codifying the right to abortion care, the right to birth control. In state law, I think there will be more movement on on protecting that work in the state. But people are are traveling from all over the country and the wait time for abortion care has skyrocketed. And if you can imagine, women are are driving sometimes uh, across various states who want to have babies. They want to have babies and their pregnancy doesn't go right. And because of it, they can, their life is in danger and they cannot get just the health care that they need in their states. It's just horrible. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember being in New Mexico and seeing these women sleeping in their cars so yeah. that they can have abortions. And, you know, we're also seeing all of these women who have miscarriages who can't then get treatment. Yeah, so there was, I heard from one of the providers a couple months ago is, is when they told me this. There was a woman in Texas with her, I think, six-year-old son and husband who had a, a natural miscarriage that was risking her life. Her medical providers refused to help her. They jumped in a car, drove from Texas to Colorado, were sitting at the provider's office at 6 a.m. in the morning, um, and at any time she could have died on that drive. Yeah. And can you imagine, like, if states supposedly care about family values or the sanctity of life, that they are telling this woman, you may have to die in front of your little son because we don't want to provide you with health care. So I, I'm just so proud of the state of Colorado and really honored to be a woman and statewide elected office right now to fight for the values. And one of the things I did last year was join the governor of Colorado and saying we will not extradite any person for the criminalization of abortion in another state. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. I just can't wrap my head around it. I mean, I can, but I just, you know, the hypocrisy is just incredible. I also wanted to ask you, what's next for you? You know, I think the next two years are going to be difficult for secretaries of state. We will beat the election denialism. I'm confident of that, but it's not being. So the the presidential election, we have 
a president who incited an insurrection, possibly top of ticket. If not, election deniers, very strong candidates on the Republican field. So the next two years, I'm going to continue to strengthen our laws and address any situation leading up to that general election for the president. So that is our our full focus. And I I think we'll have great elections, but they'll continue to be trying. So just going to continue to do everything that we can. And I'm confident the American people will, again, save democracy, just like they did in 2022. And I'll be fighting for our rights right alongside with them. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you and you making the time. Of course. Thank you for for all your leadership and for your fabulous fashion sense, which I always appreciate. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jungfast. Jesse Cannon. Marianne Williamson run for president again, but I feel like. Uh, there's been some reporting about that she's not the best person to have in an office. I would like to point out first that my relationship with Marianne Williamson is long and varied <laughs> and includes her complaining. And hilarious. Right. And includes her DMing my mother complaining about me. And so I say this. We learned today from Politico, a political story with 12 sources, that very spiritual Marianne Williamson is, in fact, a very bad boss. Again, being a bad boss is complicated. And certainly there are a lot of people who do not, who are quite tough on women, especially women in power. But I think that when your whole shtick is built on the idea that you're so spiritual and even-handed and filled with love that the fact that you throw your phone at people work for you is probably (laughs) not a great sign. And she gets our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider.